For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Tuesday, everyone, and welcome to Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? Well, 90 years ago tonight in Camden, New Jersey, the first drive-in movie appeared. Uh, and it's been going strong ever since. Well, not as strong as it was maybe in the 50s and the 60s, but it's still very much there. So not only are we going to be celebrating this incredible piece of Americana, and thank God it's still here, but I also want to say thank God uh, for April Wright, because April Wright has preserved the history of drive-in movie theaters, not only in her great film about drive-in movies, but her sequel, Back to the Drive-In. So early on in COVID, April was on this show. And like any great movie or great appearance, you always deserve a sequel. So consider today the sequel. I'm about to bring April on, but before I bring her on, I'd like you to see the trailer to this amazing film, and then we're going to jump into the history of drive-in movies. If you have questions, comments, suggestions, even if you want to come on camera with us, just let us know. Tonight, it's all about going back to the passion pit. Here it is. <laughs> This has been coming to you live. Our weather right now is actually pretty fantastic. It'll be a really nice night for driving movies. Normally expect two to three hundred, five hundred and fourteen, nine hundred cars. That's a lot of people in here. My buddy says, hey, whatever happened to that drive-in idea? He goes, put it in your backyard. That night, it was like an infusion in me to bring it back, to make it happen. There was something called showmanship. Beer garden is open, he's making white Russians. You're not gonna get that on your TV at home. It just, it's all a labor of love. We're still in the midst of this uncertainty. Day and date streaming with new movies. Is that going to be a permanent thing? Counting what we made today, five dollars. Biggest problem now is having employees, people to help, barely getting by. Then get into what the hell's going to happen to me today. This is our current situation. Movies used to mean something. and People used to anticipate their release. Will it survive? I don't know. I thought it would really be fun to spend our retirement at a drive-in. I didn't realize that we would spend our retirements on a drive-in. I think that one of the positives is more people will go to drive-ins that maybe hadn't gone before. I fell in love with it. This is like the best form of entertainment. When the kids get out of the car, the smile on their face. You can't put a price on that. It's memories that people will keep forever. Uh-huh, y'all enjoy the movie. April, I didn't realize that was the foreign trailer with all the uh, subtitles, but they're there. So it, hello and welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on this very special day, drive-in day. I'm surprised that I was able to even get you here today. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, that movie you just showed the trailer for, a year ago, I was crazy busy because we played it at, at a bunch of theaters. Mm -hmm. Um 
drive-in theaters. I had it on 20 different drive-in screens in 17 states for National Drive-In Day a year ago. Now the film's out on VOD and digital, so it's a little less busy for me. Um, but yeah, I'm still celebrating and um, very excited about drive-in still being here. <laughs> I love drive-in movie theaters. I did, I did a little research. I mean, the closest drive-in movie theater to us is the Warwick Drive-In, which is very... Uh, I guess it's about 90 minutes from uh, where I live. Uh, did you, uh, you know, did you get to the Warwick drive-in? I haven't been to the Warwick yet, but one of the drive-ins in my documentary, the Greenville drive-in, it's in the Catskills area of, uh, of New York. And they get a lot of people from New York City who drive up um, to visit the Greenville drive-in. It's the one that was just shown in the trailer where they also have an attached bar and they do theme nights. So in my film, they were showing the Big Lebowski. They were serving white Russians. They had dude cookies. So it's definitely ex an experience that's worth the trip. And going the other direction, the Benji's in Baltimore is not that far from New York City. And there's one on Cape Cod. You know, So depending where people go for their summer trips, you can probably find some drive-ins nearby. Well, like I said before, you've been on the show before. This is actually your third time here on this show, and hopefully third time's a charm. Although <laughs> the first two times were charms for me. I'm actually going to take this jacket off. I literally just came in. I rushed in, get the, got the studio set up. I did an interview in the city this afternoon with Quinn Lumley, who when she's not doing interviews, uh, performs as Rita Hayward, speaking of movies. Oh, and she's wow. absolutely phenomenal. So uh, that interview is going to be running sometime next month. But I want to get comfortable and summery and uh, get to enjoy you. And uh, <laughs> I, you know, I told you some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight may be repetitive, uh, but some people may be seeing us for the first time. Uh, I've mentioned to you in the, uh, that the very, first drive-in uh, movie that I remember seeing uh, when I was five years old. Uh, my mom and dad got us, we were in our pajamas and on uh, on Highway 501 in Conway, South Carolina, we went and we saw Fireball 500. Now look at this movie poster. This should tell you everything you need to know about my childhood. That looks fantastic. <laughs> Frank, a Frankie and Annette movie. <laughs> a Frankie and Annette movie. And I fell in love with her and have uh, been in love with her ever since. Uh, and actually, one of the wonderful things about drive-ins is they actually, people don't think about this, but they actually inspired certain genres of film that really did not exist until you had this teenage crowd predominantly in the 50s and 60s that went to drive-in movie theaters. So that poster shows everything about that, that you had beach movies. Beach movies were a big hit with teenagers at the drive-in. Racing car movies, motorcycle movies, none of that really existed until you had that drive-in audience. And a lot of films were made just for that. So when you look at this poster, everything about it, with car racing, with Frankie and Annette, that movie was made, you know, for everybody to see, of course, but it was specifically catering to that drive-in crowd. And don't you wish that we had people who created movie posters that look like this today? Oh, I know, right? Just <laughs> the artwork on those posters is is collectible, truly. <laughs> now, I asked for a picture of you as a five-year-old. I love the picture you sent. And look at you. You haven't changed a bit. Yeah, it looks similar to how I always looked. I mean, obviously I'm older, but 
now we talked a little bit about this. So uh, some of this is going to be repetitive, but you grew up in a household. Your family did go to the movies. Yes, we sure did. Yeah. Um, my dad had an eight millimeter camera and we had, you know, reel to reel um, editing equipment in the basement where you'd put put it on and you could see the image and slice the film. And then we had a projector. So even as a little kid, I knew the process of filmmaking um, that you could, you know, film something in those days, you had to take it to, you know, the film developing store, the photo mat in the parking lot or whatever it might be. Once you got that back, you could play it on your projector. You could edit it if you want to. So I always had an awareness of that, but both of my parents appreciated films um, both my brother and sister are named after films. I got the month because my mom always wanted to name her first daughter April. Um, but my brother Jordan comes from a film, something about Mr. Jordan. I can't remember the name of it. And my Jordan. Yeah, that's so my brother's name is Jordan. And then my sister's name is Rachel from Rachel, Rachel, another film. Wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do they care? Yeah personalities of either of those films with them i don't know <laughs> but um yeah i definitely had parents that both appreciated film and cinema and then as we got older you know my mom would break down films talk to us about why they were good she also liked writing so um so yeah i just grew up grew up with a huge appreciation of films filmmaking and especially the theatrical experience going to see films you know making it an event to go see a film. And that's why you and I have talked so many times because the first time we met, we were with Rosie Novellino Mearns and we talked yeah, about the movie. Love, watching, we love her. She's amazing. Um, it, people who don't know, she led the committee to save Radio City Music Hall when it was threatened with demolition in the late seventies. And so she appears in that film, which is all about the movie palace, the, you know, the big grand experiences and what happened to those places. And then I've done two about drive-ins because I just, I, I do think going to movies can and should be a special event. They're not meant to be watched on your phone, um, you know, or, or just in your house. It, it should be special. And, um, and that's why I like things like this. Go, you go to the drive-in, it's a night out. It's an event. The movie is just a small fraction of it. It's funny that you say this. When I was at this taping this afternoon, I was talking to the guy, the camera, one of the cameramen, and he's and I told him about going to see Spartacus when they restored it a few years ago, and it was at the Ziegfeld Theater uh, in New York. And I don't know mm -hmm. if you ever went to the Ziegfeld Theater, but the Ziegfeld Theater was—it's now a ballroom, but it was an old a movie, movie theater. theater. Yeah, and uh, and it was spectacular. Uh, because the way that they, you know, even before the film started, with the way that it was done, uh, you see these uh, spectacular sunrises uh, behind the curtains. The curtains actually opened. And it was an event going to see this. And I remember there was an intermission. And during intermission, this woman sitting in front of me said, I cannot wait for this to come out uh, on DVD. Or, <laughs> or I think she said VHS. Right. And I'm thinking you're missing the point, you know, these right. things are, and I, I want to, you know, I love the fact that Fathom Events and uh, TCM are giving these classic films a chance to be seen the way that the filmmakers intended for them to be seen. Yes. And I live in Los Angeles, you're in New York, but I think most of the major cities across the country, people who are cinephiles, who are into films and film history, 
I always seek out um, events like that. For example, just a few days ago um, here uh, through the Los Angeles Conservancy, it's called, they do a program called Last Remaining Seats. And so I went and saw Bruce Lee enter the dragon at a huge Orpheum theater movie palace. Um, and it was amazing. And on Saturday, I'm going to the Los Angeles movie palace to see the original Planet of the Apes. And, oh, right. you know, obviously I've seen Planet of the Apes many times, but have I seen it in a big movie palace the way that everybody would have seen it in 1968, you know, in the days preceding the multiplex? You know, you would have seen that film only in places like that. And I'm very excited to have that experience. But don't um, you find, uh, April, that when you go to see these classic films, at least it's been my experience, that the people that actually go to these older films, these classic films, have an appreciation for films such as you do. And there's a respect also. So everyone's there in a collective. It's not like, mm -hmm. with all due respect, Theater going and going to, whether you go to see live theater or going to a movie nowadays is not the most pleasant experience in the world because people have their phones out, people are talking to, you know, uh, during the film, uh, people are running back and forth to the concession stand. I find that when I go to see these classic films that that's not happening. Right, right. And, and, um, and I think a lot of it, I see a lot of younger generation people that also have appreciation of that as well. And so, yes, I seek out those experiences. And I think it applies to drive-ins just as much. Uh, most drive-ins do play first-run movies, but a lot of them do retro nights. So you might have a chance to see E.T. on the big screen or, you know, the original Ghostbusters, things that maybe you've only seen on television. And you finally get a chance to go see it at, at a cool old theater or at a drive-in, you know, people do want those experiences. And I hope that more people are like us and look for opportunities to, to go have fun like that. <laughs> well, I went just a few weeks ago to see Sweet Charity in 70 millimeter. And not only did they show uh, the film as it was originally shown, but they showed the alternate ending, which I had never seen before. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I haven't, I but I do have in my um, Movie Palace documentary, there's huge um, cutouts marketing on the Capitol Theater that was in New York City of Shirley MacLaine and, and Sweet Charity. Um, so I'm sure it played in at least that humongous Movie Palace, which I think the Capitol had three, 4,000 seats, something tremendous. Um, not as big as Radio City's 6,000 seats. Um, but it was really a huge, um, a huge theater. And just to, you know, imagine that that many people would come out to see a movie and they did. Um, and that's amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> did you ever see a movie at Radio City Music Hall? No, I have not seen a movie there yet. I've only seen the Christmas Spectacular there. Um, I went to see A Star is Born with Judy Garland and James Mason, uh, the wow. definitive one, for those who don't know, in my opinion. Uh, and I know uh, uh, my friend uh, Rosa Puzo is going to argue with me on this. And But uh, I love that film. And uh, when they restored it in 1983, uh, I was able to get tickets. And sitting, I was sitting, believe it or not, in front of Faye Kanan uh, and James Mason. Wow. And one of the <laughs> biggest thrills of my life to have that experience. I also saw once there used to be a revival house in New York, the Regency, and I saw The Wizard of Oz with Margaret Hamilton 
in the oh, audience. Wow. So that was an experience. See, those and, are things you can't forget. <laughs> so do you and, remember? The, uh, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, go ahead, because I was going to say something about drive-ins. but No, I want you to go ahead with that, please. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think that is what's cool about both of these experiences, that when you go to a drive-in, it's about much more than just the movie that you're seeing. It is a, it's an experience. And when I talk to people, they whether they were little kids or even more recent, it's not just about the film. It really creates a good memory. It really implants a memory because there's just so much going on around you, whether it's the stars over your head or the the you know vibrancy of going to the snack bar and hearing the popcorn popping and you know just that whole experience that you have with the people that you're with and in a very special venue. You know, it is about the good memories and and the people that you see there and and things that you don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I told you the last time we spoke that last summer when we were in Provincetown, we went to Wellfleet uh, yes. and we went to see Space Jam. And the only reason that we went was not because we wanted to see Space Jam. We wanted the experience of being at a drive-in movie theater because it had been so long since that had happened. Yeah. Yeah. And the Wellfleet is in back, my Back to the Drive-In. And that one's very special because I think we might have talked about this last time. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many rules in, in, in um, Cape Cod now about what you can build or can't build or tear down or whatever, that even if they wanted to expand the drive-in or add a second screen, they really couldn't. And that has contributed to keeping that as a very authentic drive-in, that it's a, still a single screen. And they also, since a lot of people do come there just for the summer, it is an event to go to that drive-in in Wellfleet. Um, they keep their speakers. They maintain them. So it's yes. one of the drive-ins where you can still hang the speaker on your window. It also comes over the radio. It's completely modern. They have a digital projector and all that. But if you want to have the, you know, the car speaker hang from your window and have that part of the retro vibe of the experience. You can do that at the Wellfleet Drive-In. And at a few others across the country, there's a few others that have uh, speakers still, still maintained as well. And even the concession stand is the same. I says the only thing that's different about the concession stand are the prices. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love authentic concessions at the drive-in. So a little bit of the history, and, and we should talk about the origin since it is drive-in oh, day. Yeah, absolutely. But um, but one thing I love about old snack bars is they really did have a design to deal with a lot of people and a lot of people coming at the same time. Not only would they come before the show to get dinner and when the kids were playing on the playground, they would get food. But the intermission was the thing. And they had special animated videos that were countdown yeah. that would tell you how many minutes there is until the next movie started. So you needed to get into the snack bar. And so they were, most of the older ones were created with these um, flow systems, almost like a school cafeteria where they had long rows and you could get your tray and fill your stuff and you could grab your own ice cream out of the um, coolers that were there. Uh, they would pre-prepare the hamburgers or the hot dogs. A lot of times those would be in a, called a vittle vendor is what they were called at the drive-ins and you could open the door, get your food out all that stuff. Um, and so they were very efficient. And when I go to a drive-in that still has their original snack bar, I just love seeing that design because it does remind me of going to the drive-in as a kid and just wanting to get stuff at the, at the drive-in snack bar because the, you'd watch those intermission trailers and it would make the food look so good. You just were like, I need all of that. <laughs> 
you know, and, and some of them had, you know, actually like vents and everything. So that the food was wafting through the parking lot or through yeah. this area. So that you, it, it was like everything was there to entice you to get there and get the food. Yes. And, and you also have to put in context that when drive in, okay, so drive in started 90 years ago, 1933, 90 years ago, today. They really re, 90 years ago today. And they really, uh, became the thing to do after World War II. Uh, the baby boom definitely influenced that. The whole soldiers returning from the war, the Eisenhower investment in the freeway system, the GI Bill, uh, putting money into expanding the suburbs and drive-ins, kids, cars, all of this all went together. Um, television wasn't really a thing yet. It came along later. So there wasn't a lot of competition for going to, to drive-ins. And the food was part of it too, because you didn't really have the McDonald's in places like that oh, just yet. True. They came along um, a bit, at, you know, a bit later in the 50s, same kind of era. Um, but, but yeah, going to a place and getting a slice of pizza or getting a hot dog, get, you know, getting a hamburger, those were things that were normally, you know, not what you did. You might go to an Italian restaurant to get a pizza, but there wasn't pizza delivery. There wasn't, you know, a McDonald's you could drive through. So when you went to the snack bar at the drive-in, it was very special. You were getting food that, you know, you wouldn't normally get. Yeah, I mean, it was an, as you said earlier, it was an event. I want to pull up this screen that I, you know, pulled up earlier, um, mm -hmm. and this tells a little bit about the very first drive-in, and that's actually our background that I'm using here. Uh, the first drive-in theater was invented in the backyard of uh, Richard Hollingshead in the early 30s. Uh, as we said, it was 90 years ago tonight. Uh, Richard nailed the screen to a tree and used a 1928 Kodak projector on the hood of his car with a radio behind the screen for sound. In 1933, Richard opened his real drive-in theater in Camden, New Jersey, not far from where I'm sitting right now. Admission was 25 cents, and the sound was projected via a directional system by RCA Victor. Wait for cars, not so good mm -hmm. for neighbors. Now, another interesting thing that I will add to this is that Richard did this for his mother. Do you, I, do you want to tell the story? Sure. In fact, I was going to say, I can provide a lot more detail to this because um, so the designer of the drive-in, Richard Hollingshead Jr., his son, Richard Hollingshead III, actually appears in my first drive-in documentary. So he told the story firsthand um, at the drive-in owners convention and I filmed it. So a couple things that we learned. Um, first off, their family was in the automotive business. So they made car care products. And um, that is what had them thinking about cars and what they could do with cars, where he came up with the idea. Now, we had always read that uh, he did it for his mother because she was a big woman and couldn't fit into the seats at a regular theater. Now, myself and a lot of people thought big meant a heavy woman. But when we met um, uh, the son, he said that his grandmother was six feet tall. So it wasn't that she was a big or heavy woman. She was she was literally a tall big woman. <laughs> and if she wore a hat, which most likely she did at that time, that wasn't fair to the people behind her. True. Good point about that. So so it really was she wasn't a big heavy set woman. She was just a very tall woman. And the seats, if you've ever been to an old 
indoor theater that has some of their original seats, they're small, even for somebody like me today. People in general were a lot smaller, I think, in those eras. So he explained that. And yes, he was there when he put the sheet up. Um, you know, between the trees and ex he experimented for a while. And the other aspect of this is that he literally patented it. So you can find the patent drawings for the first drive-in and it did have a design as a theater. The, the ramp car system was part of it. When you see like a pop-up drive-in in a parking lot, it's not really designed as a theater. It's not designed for sight lines and that type of thing, but the drive-in was, it included um, you know, curved rows, the same way you would see at an indoor um, theater, whether it's for live performance or movies. And it also, uh, part of the patent was the, the ramp parking system. So the idea that the car parked on a ramp, which all the drive-ins are designed like that today, if they're an authentic drive-in, there, there's these ramps that you can you know, sort of drive over, up and down, but they allow your car to sit at an angle so that, you know, whether you're sitting in the front or the back seat, you can see up to the screen without any, any restrictions on your vision. Now, when he originally built them, you couldn't drive over them. They were a, a flat bulkhead. So it was, you know, an incline that the car went up on and then the end was flat. You couldn't drive up over it. It had a, a big, uh, you know, uh, cutoff. And that was how he originally patented, but eventually it did evolve to just these ramps that were built. And he tried to collect patent money. Um, and the second drive-in that was built is Shankwaller's drive-in, which is up in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. That one opened the next year in 1934. They're still open and, and operating today. And the, the previous owner of that drive-in told me that he did pay Shankweiler, uh, he, Shankweiler did pay Hollingshead uh, royalty when he very first opened his drive-in. But after a year or two, he just stopped doing that. And it was very, very hard for Hollingshead to collect any sort of royalties on his patent. It was just too easy for people to, you know, build something and, and not pay, pay their dues. So he never ended up making money. And the original one that opened on this date 90 years ago, it was only in business for a few years. That, that family ended up getting out of the drive-in business. They tried it for a little while and then they didn't stick with it. So that was also something interesting to learn. Well, in your research, did you get any sense of how much preparation went into the planning before they actually opened this in terms of uh, what film they were going to show, uh, how they got that film, uh, everything that went into that marketing promotion, all of the yeah. other, uh, if you can tell us about that. Yeah, the first film was called Wife Beware, I believe. And um, it uh, they did a lot of marketing. Um, there's some of the, the newspaper ads you can find online, and they promoted it as the first outdoor automobile experience. And they charged for the car and the person. So it was 25 cents per car and then 25 cents per person inside the car. And the speakers that they originally had, I know that said RCA Victor, I'm not sure if the first ones were because the very first drive-in speakers were just a huge, big speaker uh, out in front, either under the screen, 
the the first one that was built here in Los Angeles was built, I think, in 36. So a couple years after this, but they had big speakers at the top of the screen. So it was just like projecting out to everybody. And um, like you mentioned, that did become a problem because first off, there was a sound delay. If you got further back, the <laughs> sound you were hearing didn't match what was on screen. <laughs> That was an immediate problem. They realized. What was the, area, what was the area like at that time? I mean, Camden is much bigger now than it was obviously in 1933. Uh, you know, it said that the neighbors, you know, could, you know, may have been annoyed by the sound. Uh, but was it in a, you know, vast area? I, I don't know that area as well, but I. I thought I saw in the advertisement that it said it was near the airport. So, and I think there's an airport there now. So I think it was always in an area that didn't have a ton of population because of the proximity to the airport. I'm not sure. I can say the Shankweilers was like a chicken restaurant. And when Mr. Shankweiler saw the first one in Camden, he wanted to copy it and he had enough land um, that was very rural and is still somewhat rural out there today in Orfield, um, Pennsylvania. The one um, here that was an early one in Los Angeles was absolutely rural. It's unimaginable now to think of any ounce of land in Los Angeles not being completely full like it is now. But when you see pictures of that first drive-in, it's the only thing around. Everything around it is completely just rural, um, undeveloped land. And so there, there wasn't things around them. But the um, individual speaker idea emerged pretty shortly afterwards. And I've seen photos just a few years later where they have individual speakers rigged up in front of each car. So they're like a, a, just a, a speaker sending the sound right at you from the front. That was something that happened shortly after. There were also um, an idea of underground speakers where they put sort of like a manhole system underneath each car. So you would pull up over it and the sound would come up that way. So they experimented with a ton of things. And then finally, it was an RCA um, speaker was sort of the first idea um, that lasted uh, I don't remember when they exactly came into play, but that was drive-in sound until the 80s. They switched to the radio sound in the 80s. So for a long time, um, once they got to the individual speaker design, that was the thing for decades. And that first night, was it just the film itself or were there other uh, aspects to the evening? Did they serve food that night? Were there No, no. Concessions um, came about... Um, yeah, that's a great question. I don't remember seeing anything about concessions in the drive-ins that were built before World, World War II. There were, after the first one, there were about 100 um, that were built before World War II. And it wasn't that big of a thing because at that time, as we were just talking about, there were movie palaces and people were going to see films in movie palaces. And you got into that whole golden age of Hollywood in the 30s and all of that was happening. So I feel like drive-ins were a thing, but they were kind of like, nah, you know, not that many people had cars yet. It was more, you know, just certain people had cars, other people, you know, rode the streetcars or whatever around where they lived. Um, so it was a thing, but it didn't take off. And people were going to see those big movies in the movie palaces. 
after and and then what happened was during the the war there were rubber shortages there were all these things that caused us to sort of stop focus on making cars but when you get to after world war ii and you have this convergence of things so you have uh, a bunch like i said a bunch of money coming into the economy for the soldiers coming back the gi bill the 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 road the road bill that Eisenhower did to expand the freeways you really had this focus on on growth and with the baby boom that is when the concessions came into play they even had things like bottle warming service for mothers um, they you know that's the reason a lot of drivers had those playgrounds up front because they really at that time is when they built them out to be that total experience with the food and everything because you didn't have food in indoor theaters either mm -hmm. you know same thing that also came about kind of in the 40s and 50s when you started putting concessions into um into indoor cinemas as well but you could smoke in indoor theaters i remember, no, I remember that, uh, uh, here in new york uh, a lot of the theaters in the balcony there were smoking sections uh yeah in my hometown theater uh, uh, this is something that always got to me. Uh, in the last three rows of the theater, you could smoke. Right, because that wouldn't get up to the front. Exactly. Yeah. It was just like an airplane. You could you could smoke in the back rows of the airplane, and you know, of course, that wouldn't bother anybody in the next row above you or in front of you. <clears throat> but yeah, so the concessions did come about come about a little bit later. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know you covered this in your first film um, on uh, drive-ins, uh, but what was the one moment uh, in our history in which the drive-in movie was at its peak and there were so many drive-in movie theaters around the country? Yeah, so so continuing that chronology, so the first one opened 1933. There were about 100 <clears throat> leading up to World War II. Then there was a pause. <clears throat> then after World War II, it went from 100 very quickly to a thousand. And that was in the, maybe about like 1948 that happened. I don't have all the numbers committed to heart like I used to a few years ago when I was making the film. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it very quickly jumped from a hundred to a thousand. And then it went from a thousand to about 5,000. And that was in around 1958. And there is actually documentation in box office magazine that in august of 1958 that drive-in attendance exceeded indoor theaters and that was the first time that that had ever happened so and also around that time you're starting to have a little com competition from television as well um but i um, think that also it, uh, that it, uh, another factor at that point were that some theaters were not air conditioned so in the summer, to be outdoors to, with the windows down, it was a lot more comfortable yeah. than being in a stuffy movie theater. Very much so. The indoor theaters, yeah, they didn't have air conditioning. They started having something called air cooling, um, which wasn't actual air conditioning, but a lot of them would bring in blocks of ice and they had a system underneath the seats mm -hmm. that would blow on the ice and, and a, a system of... Uh, vents yeah, that would come up yes. and some old theaters when you go into um <clears throat> if you look underneath the seats they'll have either these round or these square things under the seats that sometimes you're bumping into and people are like what is that and that is usually this early air cooling 
uh, ventilation system that was built into a lot of theaters. And eventually that turned into air conditioning. But those places were cavernous. You know, when you think of two, three, four, six thousand seats, you know, trying to cool a place like that um, really was crazy. Um, you just reminded me of something. The other attraction, when they first advertised drive-ins in, in the eras um, before you really get into the baby boom family aspect of it and the, the concessions and the playground and all that, they truly did advertise them for people who could not go to indoor theaters for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they would use terminology that we would not use today. But they would say, like, you know, drive-ins are for uh, shut-ins and invalids. And, you know, it would advertise it to people, you know, if they weren't able, because these places didn't have elevators either back then, you know. So if you're going into a movie palace, you've got to go up a lot of stairs to get to your seat and pass a lot of people. So it obviously was not a good experience for anybody who would be, you know, with different abilities would not be able to go to these places. And so that was a huge draw for drive-ins that if people, you know, needed to go see a movie, you didn't have television at home yet. um, That was a way to go see films. And so they definitely advertised it towards people, towards different types of people to, to give them access. It was, it was an accessibility thing um, for a lot of people in the beginning. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your process because, I mean, first of all, I, I want to applaud you and thank you for the work that you've done in terms of celebrating the movie palaces and the drive-in theaters. Uh, what was the impetus originally for you to do your first uh, movie on drive-in movie theaters? Well, like I was explaining, I we went to drive-ins and indoor theaters a lot um, my whole life. And so when I started getting a little older and I noticed a lot of the movie palaces um, in terrible condition, in terrible disrepair, we had a number that we would, a number of them that we would go to. Um, but at in those days before, you know, before they either got torn down or before they got restored, the red drapes were torn. The uh, the ceilings. Sometimes you couldn't see if they had beautiful paintings or, or you know, just beautiful architecture because they were stained by cigarettes, like we were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Or they had just not had the money to repair them, or they didn't have the air conditioning. You know, there were all sorts of uh, maintenance things that were happening to these places. So you, you and I would go to them and think, wow, what must this have looked like in the day? You know, amazing that something that huge, that ornate, that beautiful was built for movies. That stuck in my head about movie palaces and drive-ins, the same thing. Those screen towers are massive and the marquees were incredible and they had all this neon. And um, when there were, less and less drive-ins or when they were just sort of closed. And a lot, a lot of them were sitting abandoned for a long time. A lot of people think the real estate came into play. It reminded but... me of something that, excuse me, for, do you remember as a, as a young girl, uh, and I know I'm a little older than you are, but when our family would do family trips, uh, especially traveling at night, if you're driving along and you passed a drive-in movie theater and you could hear the sound coming through before oh, you yeah. got near it, there, there was something about that. Magical, yeah. And you could see the movie on the screen. And yeah, oh yeah, that was magical. Absolutely. Yeah. 
And so when uh, I lived in Chicago and then before, and then I moved to, to here, Los Angeles, where I live now, but I literally would drive out of my way to go visit these closed down drive-ins and just look at them and they'd be boarded up. And I would think, you know, what happened? And I had heard real estate, but that couldn't be true because for a long time, you know, not the only reason, put it that way. It, it was a factor, but it wasn't the only factor. And, and when you watch my film, you'll see there's a whole bunch of things that happened at once that caused their demise. Kind of like a whole bunch of things happened at once after World War II to make them the big thing that they were. But I would go visit them and just look at them and think, what, you know, what would this have looked like in its heyday? Look at the design of this, the architecture. In some cases, the screen towers had housing inside them. How cool would that have been to live inside a drive-in screen? Um, there were, you know, the marquees, the the fonts they used, the colors, the design, you know, it was just amazing. Mm -hmm. A lot of those marquees are so big. When you walk up to them, you know, you're just like, they're the size of a house in some cases. They're huge. And, you know, so just, I would go sit and just sit across the street. And when I moved to LA, there were a bunch of abandoned drive-ins still around the city at that time. I would drive out of my way, just go sit across the street, look at them and think, what happened? We still love cars. We still love movies. Why is this place not open? I want to be inside there seeing a film. And I was just fascinated with it. And that is what got me started on, on my first project. I thought, you know, and I wasn't even ma really making films yet, but I thought that would make a good film to look into what happened to the drive-ins. I started doing a little research and I saw there were about a thousand drive-ins left at that time. And then a few years later, drive-ins kept coming up every, I don't know why, just drive-ins, drive-ins, drive-ins. So I, and by then I was starting to make films and I thought, oh, I should look back into that idea. I looked back into it just a few years later, there was only 500 drive-ins left. And so I thought, wow, they're going fast. If I don't get on the road now, they might be all gone. So I did a tremendous amount of research. I uh, put a binder together because uh, I went out on the road to shoot my first documentary in 2006 and 2007. And um, at that time, you didn't really have uh, Google Earth yet where you could get a good aerial view of what was left somewhere. I didn't know what I was going to find. I was looking at pictures that somebody posted online from 1999. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to drive to Arizona, Colorado, wherever. Is this still going to be there in 2006? That's seven years ago. I don't know. Um, and so I drove the whole country. I took, I took two long trips the whole summer of 2006, the summer of 2007. And I went little town to little town to little town and, um, and researched the film. And the weird side effect was that I kind of became an expert on drive-ins. <laughs> I've certainly visited more drive-ins than anybody. Um, cause I went to over 500 drive-in locations, either open abandoned former sites to see what is there today. What did they put there instead of the drive-in? <laughs> um, and what's and, the more common thing? I, I think I know the answer to this. A lot of Walmarts and, and big box stores is probably predom the predominant theme you would see. Sometimes housing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I just really wanted to, that was the complete thing that inspired it was we still love cars. We still love movies. Why haven't drive-ins survived? I wanted to know the whole story. And then when you come to your uh, sequel to this, um, COVID happens. Mm -hmm. And so people are not, no longer able to go to movie theaters the way that we used to. And 
you know, I know that we had some pop-up drive-in theaters uh, here in Rockland County in parking lots at the mall and everything. They set up these screens and they were packed. There were lines of cars to get yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. It was a crazy thing. I was I wanted to make the follow-up even before COVID happened because I wanted to, I, I knew that almost all the drive-ins that are left are owned by families. They're not corporations. They're families putting their heart and soul. Sometimes they're families who, who, who their family might've built the drive-in. Um, some of them, you know, might be third generation, but some, you know, are newer in the business, but they're, they're fighting to keep their drive-ins alive for their communities they feel like they're really adding a place of value, a hub of the community where families can bring their kids and people can spend time together and that there's value to that, to, to uh, socializing together with your community. And that's one of the things that the drive-in has always been about. And I agree with that mission very much so. I think that right now we're, we're more and more separated and divided and it just is having a very negative effect on so many aspects of society that are happening right now is people are more isolated. They're not part of their communities the way that they used to be. And so I'm all for, you know, what these people are doing. And um, I just think I forgot the origin of where we started with that. No, no, no. Oh, why I made the second movie? Because yeah, I wanted to really go deeper. The, the first documentary I did was the history. So the first movie talks about the invention and all the ups and downs over the years, all the factors that contributed to the drive-in's success and later to the drive-in's demise. And But I wanted to go back because there were still over 300 drive-ins, mostly family-owned, and they're, they're putting so much work and effort into getting people to come out to their drive-ins. And I wanted to show what they're doing. I wanted to pull back the curtain, go behind the scenes, show that even though the drive-ins are still there, they need our support. You have to go to the drive-in. You have to buy the food. I wanted people to appreciate um, what they're doing and why it's important. And then COVID happened and it brought all this attention on drive-ins. And there were a ton of pop-up experiences because there was nothing else. So you saw indoor theaters put uh, movies on their wall outside in their parking lot. You saw restaurants doing that. You saw, you know, just every type of thing. Drive-ins were the only show in town, literally. <laughs> and not only were they showing movies, they were having high school graduations. They were having dance recitals. They were having weddings. They were having musical acts, bands, every other type of venue. They were having stand-up comedy. Every yeah. type of venue was closed. So drive-ins became the place for all of that. And it was great. But um, depending on the state where you were, they were still operating under whatever restrictions, which might have been you have to be at half capacity. You have to leave a space between your car. Your cars have to social distance or you can't have your snack bar open because it falls under the restaurant rules of the place. You can only do takeout or whatever that might be. So they they were still inhibited. And of course, the biggest thing during COVID was there were hardly any new movies being released. So they were all playing a lot of retro films yeah. and, and, and the few new films that were coming out, mostly from some of the mini majors instead of the big studios that were still releasing some films. And I, I just wanted to show that. So I did go on the road in 2021. So it's sort of the second year of COVID no, coming, coming out of it. You traveled by yourself around the country. I did. <laughs> yep. So I brought my main camera, my drone, 
and uh, a GoPro to do a day to night time lapse at each drive-in. So that's how I got enough footage to cut together to show the experience at each drive-in. And I just wanted to go behind the scenes to show all the things that they do. And, um, and I think we're coming out of COVID now. People are going back to the movies. Um, everybody's optimistic about how they'll do this summer. There's a very good lineup of movies that are very drive-in friendly. Um, so we're all hopeful that this year will go really well for the drive-ins. And there's a little under 300 of them now. I think I asked you this question before, uh, but is there one particular film, I mean, it, it, that you would love to see at a drive-in movie theater? What movie? Yeah, you might have asked this before. Did I say Carrie? Because <laughs> that is, uh, <laughs> that's one of my favorite films, and I have not seen that yet at a drive-in. So for me, that would be terrifying and fun to see that movie at, at a drive-in. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, every film is better at a drive-in, isn't it? I don't know. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I, and I mentioned this before, one of my favorite pictures is that photograph in Life magazine uh, of uh, Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments uh, at a drive-in movie theater. It's an iconic picture. I know that you know it. I have and, seen uh, that, yes. It's such a great film, uh, uh, just a, a great photograph. Um, I want to ask you with... Uh, you know, very recently, uh, we had an ice cream uh, business that shut down. Uh, it, they closed uh, after being in business since 1935. And uh, the latest generation uh, of uh, the family, uh, because like these drive-in movie theaters, they no longer have the interest that their uh, preceding uh what's the word, ancestors, I guess, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. had, uh, had with it. Um, in your research, did you find that that sometimes happens, uh, that they just lose interest with this? I know that some people hold on to these uh, for the nostalgic aspect of it. I still love to go to a drive-in movie theater because of these memories that he evokes for my childhood. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that a lot of people... Uh, do still love to do these things for those reasons. But do you find that that's an aspect of why we're losing some of these theaters as well? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. Um, what I've seen in drive-ins is sometimes it does go in, in the family generation to generation. There's a number of drive-ins operating now where it has skipped a generation. So the person who owned it originally, their children have no interest in the drive-in, but then it's the grandchildren that take it over. Um, there's the boulevard in Kansas City is that way. The grandson of the original is operating it now. Same thing at the 99W outside of Oregon, outside of Portland, Oregon. Um, so there's a couple examples of that. The other thing that a number of them will do if they don't have a direct you know, kid or grandkid is they have a longtime employee who they will work out the financials for them to take it over. And there's a number of drive-ins that are under that situation um, where they're changing hands to a long-term employee or the person who's operating it now owns and runs the drive-in now because they were once an employee there. Um, so they kind of become part of the family <laughs> and take it over, just not a blood, blood part of the family and take it over. Um, but yeah, that's very much a big piece of it. And it's kind of, 
interesting because you know these families started the drive-ins and then it's like they they did well enough for their kids to go to college to get different careers so that they're on different paths where they don't want to come back and run the family business um so it's like their success leads to their demise <laughs> in a way um but yeah i i think where where either employees can take it over or somebody in the family or just somebody who is interested in operating a drive-in, the Shankweilers, um, the, the man that was running it, he, I believe he was an employee who took it over and then he just sold it to a younger couple last year and they just um, love drive-ins. They had a, a pop-up drive-in business and they bought not just an authentic drive-in, but, you know, the, the oldest still operating drive-in. So there are younger people getting into the business. And one thing you'll see in my new documentaries, there are new drive-ins being built from scratch. Mm -hmm. One I went to in the film in, in, uh, outside of Omaha, Nebraska, the Quasar drive-in is a couple that, um, studied the, the wife was an architect. And so she studied old drive-ins and um, designed her new drive-in like an old drive-in and when you go there it's brand spanking new but it sure feels old at the same time like it has both it's really cool um, and there's a few that we call them footprints in the business when they are sitting there where where you know the layout is still there the ramps are still there in some cases some of some of it might still be there some of the structures but near us yes but yeah, if you have a footprint, a footprint can always come back. And a number of those have come back um, around the country in the last few years. Um, so, you know, you never know. <laughs> so when you were making this uh, movie, uh, and I'm speaking specifically, uh, well, either uh, of the two films, um, did you have a specific aha moment for you that stands out? um above all others as to you know this is why it's very important that this uh, these two films be made yeah okay so the first one um you know like i said i did as much research as i could and started getting on the out on the road and i i wanted to be very thorough which is part of why i called it the definitive story of the american drive-in movie because i wanted to cover every aspect and I did travel to almost every state. Alaska is the only state I have not been to yet. They did have drive-ins there. I just, I still need to get there. But I really wanted to be thorough and understand it. So part of what started coming together was um, the way that they were built was they were originally on the outskirts of towns. And then as they um, expanded over time and the suburbs grew even more, uh, the drive-in ended up in the town. And that is what usually became a problem because when they were first built, they were over the city border. So they had different regulations. They were not near anybody else. And then they would get consumed by everything else and kind of get pushed out. So it's not that that surprised me, but when you sort of see it physically, visually, not just in one town, but you see it over and over again, um, that was really interesting just to see how much, even though they were in different states, different cities, different regions, different weather, different everything, um, but the basic layouts of towns in the U.S. and where the drive-in fit into that, I would get to towns and you could see there was like an X, Y axis, like here's a main road running through here that might be the the you know free, freeway. In some cases, it might be a two-lane freeway, but 
the the street that would connect this town to the other town to the other town and then there might be another cross street and i would get to the towns i'd be like okay there's not a documented drive-in but this town feels big enough to support it i bet if i go out on you know either way on this grid on this road or on this road i'm gonna find one and in some cases i did um i did find drive-ins that were not online anywhere just by sort of knowing once I, once I'd been to a few, it was like, I just knew where to look for them. <laughs> and so I didn't, I, I guess what, what I learned was just all the pieces, all the factors that went into it and that it really was more complicated. And, and the fact that drive-ins rose in the forties, you know, like I said, from about a hundred to, you know, 5,000. And then they really stuck around from the 40s to the 80s. And then they had a really big decline because of a bunch of other factors. So it wasn't like they were big and then they just tapered off over time. It was like they were big. They held really good for 40 years. So it was like psh, they went up, they went down. It's more it's more a map like that. I didn't know that when I started. Um, so that was a big deal for me. And actually, similarly, making the new movie, I thought I would find all different things because I intentionally, I, I only went to 11 drive-ins to, to focus on in this film, but yeah. I tried to make them as diverse as I could in terms of uh, different factors. So by diverse, I mean, I went to rural places. I went to cities. I went to single screen drive-ins. I went to nine screen drive-ins. I went to, you know, brand new drive-ins. I went to ones that had been there for, you know, 60, 70 years. I went to ones that, you know, were in families forever, ones that were newer people in the business, like just every factor I could think of to get to different types of drive-ins. And um, what I learned um, very quickly after going to just a few was in the, in, in their struggle to survive and especially coming out of COVID, they all started telling me the same stories. They were all having trouble getting employees because the same way that restaurants were having trouble getting, um, you know, people that want to work hourly jobs, they couldn't find employees. They couldn't keep their ticket booths open. They couldn't, you know, they didn't have enough people to operate the place. They were all having supply chain issues. They all couldn't get their, you know, nacho cheese. They couldn't get their containers for popcorn. They couldn't get, they were really, really getting hit with the supply chain shortages that we were hearing about. They were all having very impolite customers, um, which after COVID people were cooped up. You saw a lot of belligerence on airlines and all of that. Drive-ins were getting that. You're yeah. here to have fun. You're here to have fun. But, you know, a lot of people didn't want to follow the rules. They were all, you know, things that had never happened to them in 30 years. Suddenly they were like having to kick out customers and things like that. So I thought that was interesting that as much as you think, you know, we have red states, we have blue states, we have all these different things happening um, in our country. And when I went to the drive-ins, it didn't matter where they were, how big, how small, how old or new or whatever. They all had their heart in the same place. They were all doing it for the same reasons and they were all telling me all the same issues. And it just made me realize how much more, you know, things are alike and how much more they have in common than, than differences. Um, and that was the thing that really shone through and I think comes through in the film as well. Absolutely. Well, April, I've got a bucket list item. Someday I want to go to a drive-in movie theater with you. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes, I hope they were at the same place at the same time. If not, they that get well You never know. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to be there this summer, so I'm looking forward to being there again. Um, this hour flew as I knew that it would. Um, you are just an incredible guest, and I love it every time you say yes to me. So thanks for saying yes yet again. Um, I'm going to say my closing remarks, and then I'm going to turn it over to you and give you the final comments for today. It could be about anything that we spoke about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with right now. Um, I want everyone who's watching the show tonight to Google April and to look her up. Uh, her films are all available on demand, and they are incredible films. If you love film, uh, the passion is in all three films. So please, what's, what's next for you, April? Oh, so many things I can't even get into it. A lot, a lot of documentary and narrative projects. Okay, but you'll come back and talk about them. Sure, of course. Okay, great. That'll be great. So anyway, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Pick up the phone and call someone that you haven't spoken to in a while and say, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to go see a drive-in movie and take them to a drive-in movie. And when you go to the drive-in movie, tell them that you got the idea from this show tonight. Tell your friends about this show. If you are not a subscriber, I hope that you will subscribe to this show. Tell your friends about this. And let's all keep this art form, it's a part of our Americana, alive and well. And remember, it's not just about us going to the films. It's about supporting these families these family-run businesses and keeping it going. Uh, Leslie Jordan, who was one of my favorite comedians, said he learned that when he went to an audition, instead of going and saying, what am I going to get out of this? To say, how can I be of service to the people that I'm going to be a part of? And think of it in that terms. How am I going to be of service to these mom and pop businesses? Because that's exactly what they are in most cases. So really get out there and support them. Uh, I have a dear friend and he says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that, I'm gonna leave the screen. April, it's all yours. And once again, thank you so much for saying yes to being here today. Happy drive-in movie theater. I'm gonna go watch your documentary again tonight. It's incredible, thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me on your show. It's always a delight. You ask wonderful questions. And especially today to celebrate National Drive-In Day, you know, who would think that a crazy invention like a drive-in would still be around 90 years later that we're celebrating 90 years of it? Uh, I bet a lot of the technologies and things that we're doing today are not going to last for 90 years. So um, do your research, find where the drive-ins are. Maybe you're traveling this summer and go visit a drive-in and, um, and enjoy that experience. And, and that's all I have to say. Happy drive-in day. <laughs>